Welcome to the Elevate Together podcast, voices of change in the business of law. Hello, this is Nicole Jantonio, the head of global marketing at Elevate. The podcast episode you're about to hear is part of our expert series featuring Elevate president John Croft talking with the CEO and founder of the 93% Club, Herbert Smith Freehills associate Sophie Pender. Sophie describes her background, education experience, and the work of the 93% Club to clear a path for legal professionals from non-traditional social economic backgrounds. Sophie, very nice to see you and thank you very much for joining today. We were introduced by Richard Given, first of all, who was actually my very first guest on this series of podcasts on equitability and inclusion. A lot of the people I've spoken to have covered topics that are very obvious in law. And what I mean is you walk into an office, you walk into a law firm or a law department, and you can immediately see the sort of gender or racial mix in the room, good or bad. But one of the things that isn't immediately noticeable when you sort of meet somebody is their socioeconomic background. So I was really fascinated by you and your story. Could you maybe kick off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and kind of what you're here today? Yeah, of course. I guess maybe I'll do things a bit differently then. Maybe I'll start talking about where I am right now and what you might see on the surface when you come into the room, as you said, John, and then talk a little bit about my upbringing. So I am Sophie. I am the CEO and founder of the 93% Club. And I am also a trainee lawyer at Herbert Smith Freehills, although I qualify on Monday, so I can start calling myself a lawyer, which is really exciting. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a long journey. I'm so excited to actually be able to say, oh, you know, I'm not an actual lawyer now, I'm not a trainee lawyer, not a baby lawyer. And over the last 25 years, I've had some incredible experiences. I have been to the House of Commons, I've been to the House of Lords, Downing Street, and I've presented on behalf of charities for fundraisers. I've traveled a lot through my work. So I just came back from my traineeship in Dubai. And, and like I said, come December, I will be an associate in the corporate MA team at HSF. Day to day, I get to work with some of the world's largest and most significant companies. I get to work with incredibly bright people. But I also get to spend a lot of people who have been dealt a very good hand in life. You know, they were raised with nannies, supported their parents, they went to top private schools, seem to speak several languages, which is incredibly impressive, seem to know a lot of people, have several sports and hobbies under their belts. These people are some of my closest friends, people that I share my life with. And it's really interesting talking about our respective backgrounds because it kind of seems like they always knew where they were going to end up. And it was somewhat of an inevitability that you were going to go to university and you were going to become a professional. Then actually, if you didn't, you were doing something really wrong. It wasn't aspirational. It was the benchmark of what was acceptable. And anything less than that, you are a failure. That was a really interesting learning curve for me. And I think on the surface, I would come across as one of these people. I think like to think I'm relatively well-spoken. I've obviously got an incredible career. I went to Bristol University. I didn't grow up that way. I was never someone who was expected to achieve any of these things. So in terms of my upbringing, I was born in Edgware, which is in North London. And I was born into a council estate called Graham Park, where I lived with my mum and my dad. 
My mum is the youngest of 14 children. And my dad was from a similarly large family split between the UK and Ireland. So I'm half Irish, although his family wasn't quite as big. Both families, they very much had a traditional idea of what children should be doing with their lives. My mum was encouraged age 16 to leave school and get a job. She wanted to become an air hostess, but my nan just said, no, really sorry, can't afford the books. You're going to have to just go and get a job like the rest of your siblings. My dad had a very similar upbringing, although I actually think my dad was a bit more of a a tearaway than my mum. So my mum tells me when she was younger, she'd have holes in her shoes and she'd have to put cardboard inside of them to stop the water getting in. And my dad left home. I think he was kicked out when he was a lot younger before he met my mum. Both of them, before I was born, lived in a bedsit where the toilet was in the same room as the bed. My mum especially describes having an incredibly happy childhood, but never really had a lot of resource. And then my dad was a lot more complicated as an individual because of everything that happened to him growing up. He developed a problem with alcoholism. He had a drug addiction. And as a result of that, we were obviously quite poor. He was in and out of prison because of this, and it made him incredibly volatile as an individual. I loved him very much, didn't blame him for these things. You can't blame people for sicknesses like this. I was growing up, I very much remember things like having to fill up bathtubs with kettles because it was a cheaper way of doing things or, you know, having to put extra layers of clothing on when things would get cold. It was a lot. Despite all of this, I worked incredibly hard at school. School for me was like a safe space where if a teacher told me that I was doing really well, it was like a, the best pat on the head imaginable. I loved it. And I kind of felt like nothing could touch me within those four walls. But then when I was 12, I guess just to like round off this chapter in my life, my dad passed away after his various issues. So that chapter was closed in my life. And is as bleak as it sounds, I was kind of ready to not have that hanging over me and just move on. But I did very well at school because I was... I just needed to pull myself out of my circumstances, then continued to do very well at A-level. I became the first person in my school to get three A stars. And I did this whilst balancing a job at McDonald's and John Lewis. Then I got a spot at Bristol to study English. So I guess that's a bit about my background. That is absolutely amazing. What extraordinary strength you've showed through that period in your life. I'm delighted it's ended up where it has here with you in the job you're doing. And if that's your background, it might be obvious, but we also have a a global listenership here. So I know what the 93% Club stands for. Many people don't. Would you like to talk a little bit about what that is and how you came to start that? The 93% Club, a nationwide student charity in the UK that supports state school students at university. And it came to be because when I was in my second year of university, I had had enough, to be honest. So I skipped into Bristol thinking, I've got my three A stars, I'm going to study English, we're going to talk about politics, we're going to talk about poetry, and it's all going to be great. And I'm going to make so many friends and I'm going to run around with a beret on. And I thought it was going to be a really lovely, charmed existence, effectively. I got there and it was a really weird experience. I hadn't done much research into Bristol at the time, to be honest with you. I was recommended to go there by my English teacher who said, you know, you should consider it as a great uni. And my application for Oxford didn't work out because I applied for English. And then when I had my interview, they asked me, you know, what books have you read? And I said, oh, Harry Potter. And they were like, get out. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> they basically, basically booted me out of the room, uh, more or less. 
I'd applied for St. John's, which I didn't realize had a pretty formidable reputation, but we live and we learn. So went to Bristol, was very excited. But then within the first week, I realized that university wasn't necessarily this community of like-minded individuals who are interested in higher education. It was that to an extent, but mostly it was an extension of what we already have in the UK, which is the private public school system. If there's listeners in the US, the public it's the other way around. So public schools are the fee-paying ones. And I thought it was really weird because in my first week, everyone would say, oh, nice to meet you. What school did you go to? And I think, you're not going to know what school I went to. Strange. I thought, who are these people with encyclopedic knowledges of all the schools in the UK? Because I certainly don't know any schools that aren't in my area. But what I realized was actually there's like 10 or so top schools where if you say one, you're going to know someone who went there or their brother went there. Complete news to me. And it was, I think it was my first experience of realizing that people in the UK do judge others on the basis of their financial circumstances or their upbringing. I remember people used to say to me, are they of good stock? And I thought, I have no idea what that means. And I Googled it and then I realized that it was they're talking about cattle or something and it's all to do with your upbringing and how you were reared or whatever you want to call it. And it was my first time experiencing this. And I think it just got worse and worse. And it got to a stage where I felt incredibly lonely, not just in the community in that I didn't feel like I could meet people who really understood me. I actually felt completely disconnected from myself as a person. I didn't really know who I was anymore. You know, I changed my accent a lot. My accent now is a lot more refined than it used to be. I got a nose piercing really randomly. I took stuff out on finance because I felt like my phone wasn't good enough. My laptop wasn't good enough. And all these things I felt so pressured into because of the way that I was treated by students who had gone to certain schools. At the time, the university, I didn't really feel like was supporting those from working class backgrounds or state schools. They were very hot on the other DNI fronts. As you've noticed, John, socioeconomic status has been left out for a long time. I'm a, a working class woman. I can find loads of support for being a woman, which is fantastic. But actually, the disadvantages that I'm seeing in my life right now are stemming from my socioeconomic background. So why is there no support for me in that? That's when I founded the 93% Club because I thought, firstly, I need some mates. <laughs> I want to find some other people. And the term the 93% Club comes from the fact that 93% of the UK population is educated at state schools. So when you actually compare that figure to the stats when it comes to how many state-educated individuals are actually in law, medicine, journalism, it makes it all the more stark. So did you start it at university or did you start it when you left university? I started it at university. I started it in my second year. So I was just 19. I put a Facebook post out and I said, oh, you know, guys, is anyone interested in joining the State School Society? And I created a Facebook group and it just absolutely blew up. It was huge that we had that 500 members in the first three months, but it also blew up in the opposite way, which was that I had a lot of kids from private school coming for me. Even some kids from state schools, to be honest, who were like, you're creating a divide. This is a terrible idea. People would write think pieces about me. It was a wild time. Once you left university, what happened then? You obviously have ended up doing what you're doing now, but how has the 93% club sort of morphed from being a, let's call it a student body to a more professional establishment? So I founded the society in Bristol and then the next year 
it was found in Durham. So a girl messaged me and said, I've read about what you've been doing. The messaging really resonates with me. Do you mind if I set one up at Durham? And I was like, of course, yeah. If this is something that really resonates with you, you should definitely do that. And then after that, I took a break because I was training to be a lawyer. It's obviously incredibly intense. And after spending what felt like the most part of a year and a half arguing about the issue and saying, this is important. You should care about people from working class backgrounds or you should care about people from state schools. I was exhausted. I felt like a shell of a human being, to be honest, and thought I need to focus on myself because you can't pour from an empty cup. And what happened was then the pandemic hit and I gave a talk. It was actually a law talk. So I was talking about my journey into law. And I mentioned the 93% Club because actually my work with the 93% Club helped me to get my job at HSF. I actually met HSF through the 93% Club because when I was trying to fundraise for the 93% Club, I would go to graduate recruitment fairs with a little notepad and I would walk around to all the different stands and speak to the graduate recruiters and say, do you want to give me some money for this? Because I know that you definitely need some more diverse students. And HSF were like, yeah, we love this idea. It's an area that we're really keen to focus on and it's something that we're not doing very well at. So they were our first sponsors. So I was telling the students a bit about that and what the 93% Club does, which I don't think I've touched on. So I'll get to that in a second. It ended up in a situation where I was getting an absolute barrage of messages on LinkedIn from students saying, this is my experience. I feel like I need support. Do you mind if I set one up at my university? And in 2020, we went from having two societies Bristol and Durham to just under 50 nationwide. And it's now a fully established charity. Well, that is an extraordinary achievement. I think you've really hit on something that's resonated with people. Having done that, I know from other conversations I've had with people, I think you and I were talking about this the other day. There's a group I do some work with called She Breaks the Law. They were the same. It started with a very similar to you, a very personal story, and it suddenly ballooned up. And the worry is sort of, where do we go from here? Where do you go from here? Before you answer that, touch on what is the 93% Club hoping to achieve? Our ambitions are twofold. Firstly, what we're trying to do is to bring a conversation about this topic. It's okay to talk about socioeconomic status. The UK has a real issue with it. And I'm sure you've experienced this, John, as well. It's We're very tight-lipped about the fact that if you have money, it makes things easier for you in life. I'm trying to encourage a conversation where we address that. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with being born with privilege. What matters is how you use it. I think for a long time, people have felt very threatened by the idea that if you say this person went to a state school or because not everyone from state schools is disadvantaged from a lower socioeconomic background, that's very important to know. And not everyone that went to private school is either. So yes, it's not as binary as that. Exactly. It's a very great issue. I think it's important that we talk about these things. And what I have found amazing is that the more I've opened up about my story, which to be honest, to a lot of people used to make them recoil. And people used to look at me like I had three heads. The minute you start talking about having an alcoholic father working at McDonald's, people are horrified. And the more I've spoken about it and the more vulnerable I've been with the people around me and the people that I work with, the more they've actually opened up themselves. And it's been a really, really beautiful thing. We need to stop looking at people and valuing them on the basis of their upbringing or how much money they have in the bank. And it's a very important message that I don't think the UK has got quite right yet. And that's what we're working towards. The second arm of it, I guess, is the more practical arm, which is we acknowledge that we're not going to change things overnight. In an ideal world, we change it all. But unfortunately, I think it's going to take a long time for things to properly change. 
while that happens, we want to equip students with the necessary skills that they need to get into these top employer roles. What I was finding through Bristol and through law school was that I was having very informal conversations with friends of mine who had gone to some very good schools. And they would tell me the privileges that they'd had. They say, well, I you know, had someone to check my CV or I know this person I can call upon or I had debating lessons. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we're really going to work towards a meritocracy, if I could package up everything you are saying that you had, that you paid for at school or got because of your upbringing, and I just gave it back for free to those people who can't afford it. And that's what we're doing, effectively trying to package up privilege and give it back to those who need it the most. That is absolutely fantastic because it's something that I personally have always wished I could do more of. And it was actually the conversation I had with Richard, which is that people that come to me to ask things like that, I will gladly help. But I know that most of the people that come to me kind of know me and are in that little privilege bucket already. And sort of how do we connect with people that might not be able to reach others? Depending on which side of the fence one was sitting on, how does this work? If I wanted to help sort of mentor somebody or give back in some way, how would that work in the 93% club? We don't have a formal mentoring scheme in place. So the way that we currently run our events is that we work with predominantly big corporates who have lots of resources and have a real drought when it comes to diverse talent. And the reason we tend to work with them more is because they do just have a ton of resources. They're very easy to work with. And what they do is they put on skill sessions. So we have one coming up with Accenture where we're going to be doing things like personal branding, how to sell yourself. And we're going to be paying for the students to have their LinkedIn headshots taken for free by a professional photographer and they can use that on their profile. So that's one way that we work with students. Another way is that, you know, for example, John, if you got in contact with the 93% club and said, I'm a professional, I've got some time in my hands, I really want to look after a student who needs some support, we would look at your professional profile and your connections and we could just put you in touch with someone who needs it. So it's very flexible, very organic. It's meant to replicate the experience that you would get, John, if someone that you knew came to you and said that. So that's what we're hoping to build out and that's what we're currently doing. And I'm very keen for it to go one step further than mentorship because you hear a lot about mentoring schemes. It relies on both parties being you know, very active in it. And what I want to transform it into is effectively sponsorship. So, you know, if we put you in contact with someone, John, you would feel personally responsible for them. Obviously, there has to be an element on their own part, but you would put them in front of the right people. You would give them very honest advice and feedback. And that's how it would work. Well, that is absolutely fantastic. One of the things that we just touched on in passing was 2020. And the world took a battering last year and everyone had a new set of challenges that they weren't expecting. How has that affected your colleagues in the 93% Club? I would say that most people haven't had a great time, of course. What we found at the 93% Club is that a lot of employers were talking about how amazing it was that they could reach a huge amount of students nationwide who would otherwise be excluded because they might not be able to make the trip into London. And so that's been a huge positive. I think geographically, they've been able to reach students who wouldn't otherwise be exposed to those employers. The thing that we were concerned about and we did some research into was the working environments of those students because the students at university weren't just studying online. It wasn't just a case of doing their classes. They were also interviewing online. They were being expected to network with employers. We were hearing that employers are going to be doing more and more online events. So we wanted to basically just test it and say to our members, you know, how are you finding it? What struggles are you facing? At the beginning of the year, between January and February, we did a working environment survey. So we released a survey to our members 
saying, how are you finding it? Give us some examples of your experiences. And if you feel comfortable, would you mind attaching a photo of your working environment to the response? We wanted to see actually where the students were working, what they were having to deal with. And we received 689 responses in that short period of time, most of which also attached an image. And honestly, John, I cried reading them because it really deeply upset me. So many of the students said that they didn't have access to Wi-Fi. I think the saddest thing for me was that so many of them said that they felt too embarrassed to put their cameras on because of the working environments they were in. A lot of the photos we received were students sharing bedrooms with siblings, someone on their bed with a dinner tray to put their laptop on, and that's where they were working from. And some of the testimony we had, so one person said, I've got it in front of me, actually, I'll just read it for you because it was so devastating. I have a very cluttered space. My desk chair and desk aren't ergonomic and they're very old. And so it's very uncomfortable to be in any place for more than five to 10 minutes. We have damp, so I keep getting chest pain. And I also have to share a space with my mum and my brother, which broke my heart. And then there was another student who said, my flat is very, very cold. I have to wear at least two jumpers and a blanket most of the time because my dad can't afford to have the heating on. And I just thought these people were having to interview for jobs and put their best selves forward. Some of them describe feeling quite degraded because they had to put their cameras on and they were worried that someone would judge their backgrounds. And it would be naive of us for us to say that doesn't happen. When someone puts their Zoom background on, if you see a nice background, you're like, oh, that's nice. If someone puts their camera on, they've got a little brother or sister running around in the background or the Wi-Fi is patchy, you automatically don't get to have that connection with the person. So I think that it's been positive in a number of ways in that geographically you can reach more students. And obviously it removes financial barriers in terms of travel, but we just want employers to be mindful of the fact that if you are interviewing students, give them the option to come in and pay those expenses up front. We talk about equitability and inclusion rather than diversity and inclusion. And we talk about deliberate equitability and inclusion. And with everyone I've spoken to on this series Everyone's had fantastic stories. Yours is amazing. We've got a problem in the legal sector. It doesn't matter whether you work in a law firm or a law department. It is a simple fact that it is not equal. What could we do to make a difference? If you're going to give work experience to someone, make sure that you also do it for someone else who wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity. Make sure it's paid. Give them expenses. Make sure you give those expenses up front because a lot of the things I used to do when I was a student, it would stress me out so much not knowing whether or not when I was out for lunch for someone, were they going to pay the bills? Are I going to have to pick up the bill? I can't really afford this fancy restaurant. This is really stressful. So when I have a work experience student now who comes into the law firm, the first thing I say when I see them is, hey, I'd love to take you out for lunch and I'll pay for it on my firm card. And it's a real relief to hear that you're not going to have to sit at the table and be like, oh, who's going to pick up the bill? Even with things like coffees, not knowing what to do in that situation. So I think those are really small things that you can do. In terms of once the individual is actually in the organization, I think firstly, it's really important to have conversations like we're having, John. Like I think what you're doing on this podcast is incredibly important, which is talking about these issues and not just assuming that if you ignore it, they're going to go away because they're going to continue to exist for a small proportion of your workforce. You ignoring it as a senior employer or as someone in a position of power isn't going to help that. You can do focus groups for your employees, sit down with them and say, listen, I may not have the same life experiences as you. I recognize that, but I want to learn. I want to know what is it like to be you in this organization. And I think also preparing yourself to hear something that you don't like is really important. Be uncomfortable and that's all right as long as you learn from it. I think another thing that 
employees could do that I'd like to see more of is additional training. So doing the kind of training that we do at the 93% Club for junior employees once they start at the organization. So things like how to do client pitching, how to present, how to go to a fancy networking event and balance some champagne with some tiny canapes. If that's the way that things are going to continue to work, if we are going to go to these fancy events and wine and dine, some people don't feel comfortable in those spaces. And it's really daunting. And you need to allow people to feel comfortable in those spaces or you change the way it is and you find something that's a little bit more accessible for everyone. So yeah, I think there's a lot that could be done. I mean, I think fundamentally, we all recognize that this is a systemic issue and the issues start way down the road, like before they even walk through the doors of law firms or organizations. But I think once these individuals get into the law firms, once they get into these, you know, the city jobs, it's really important for senior management to communicate that message that you do matter, your experience is valid. Also, making sure that there's a no tolerance culture for mocking. We haven't touched on that. And I think it's a whole other can of worms. I almost feel like mocking on the basis of socioeconomic background is still massively accepted in organizations. And that should definitely put a pin in that immediately. I couldn't agree more. Sophie, it has been an absolute delight talking to you. Everything you've said has made perfect sense. But as you say, it's actually the first time I've heard somebody articulate it, even though, of course, it's right. So thank you very much and very, very best of luck. Thank you. Tune in to the next episode of the Elevate Together podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and elevateservices.com.